Hello and welcome to another episode of the Self Made Podcast. On this episode, I welcome back Steve Collins to the show. It's now January 2022 and many of you are either just getting started on New Year's resolutions or if you started straight when 2022 hit, are ready to take your training up a gear. And in this episode, we wanted to help you do just that. And we break down what you need to know to really master the art of training in this year. We talk key fundamentals to program design. We talk should you train to failure or not as well as then breaking down step by step what you should think about in terms of exercises for your programs, how to periodize your programs, and how to get the best results, whether your goal is strength, hypertrophy, or fat loss. So if you're somebody who's looking to start a new training program, this is a great episode for you. Or if you're someone who just wants to understand the rationale behind your current program or your client's program, this is a really, really good episode for you. And if you're someone who wants to kind of take their training to the next level in 2022, definitely reach out to Steve or myself where we've got a number of things on the horizon for you guys, both looking at membership sites and training to make sure that your results are better than ever before. And I'll leave you with myself and Steve Collins. So Steve, welcome back onto the show. Obviously, last time we did an introduction to you. This is now going to be more of an introduction to training. So for everybody who wants to maybe win January 2022, 2022, People want to start training, start getting themselves in shape, start getting stronger. I thought there wasn't a better guest to have on to go through the basics of training program design and how to get into the gym. So obviously, people know a little bit about you from the last episode. Give us an overview of of your experience and why you know training. Thanks for having me on, Si. It's all right. So, uh, you know, I've been in the game now for more than a decade, Um, maybe 12, 13 years now. Time flies. Time flies, right? It does, yeah. Obviously, I, I played sport at a decent level when I was younger, like a lot of trainers, injured, fell out of it, got into coaching, training, and uh, been a part of it ever since, working with General Pop back in London. Now I live in Perth, Australia, where I work with different types of clients from General Pop all the way up to high-level athletes. So, yeah, I like to think of myself as a performance coach, but also, you know, a personal trainer who works with normal people, you know? The... Um... Yeah, what I've, I always struck with you when we worked together in London, that was you were very analytical in a, in at the time, very bodybuilding orientated world. Now, I wouldn't necessarily completely call you an athletic strength coach. And I wouldn't necessarily, you're certainly not a bodybuilding coach either. Like, wh- where's the analytical brain came from with you? Like, I, I was never really exposed to that early on. Like, where do you think that came from in terms of, no, like, being able to look at things in long-term models and that sort of stuff? I don't know. I, I've always just been... Um... You know, firstly, I'm I'm quite a creature of habits, you know, like I have I like the same routine, you know, I don't like change there. And um I just like to be efficient, you know. I just love um, when it comes to you know movement exercise, I just love to see good quality movement because you know, I see I've seen a lot of bad movement over the years. And not to say that, you know, if you're an athlete, you have to be the best mover, because a lot of times, you know, those great athletes aren't good movers. The best compensators. Yeah, they're they're better compensators, that's right. Yeah. But from you know overall um you know working with general pop you know you like to see him move well right being able to you know have, you know how to hinge from the hip and bend from the knees and you know posture that sort of stuff so um i don't know really i just i've just always enjoyed teaching coaching and doing a good job at it i think you know i've always been a bit anal with it you know like getting them to move right and it's just just the way i coach you know yeah 
You mentioned obviously training general population to training athletes. And we spoke before getting on this call about a couple of crazy 13, 14 year olds that you're training that can box up taller than me. Like, is there massive differences when you look, come to program design for someone who is, I just want to lose a little bit of fat to somebody who is international javelin thrower? Like, how does how does the like the basics of the program change? Or is they they're quite similar, but with a few differences? Well, first of all, like exercise principles. That, you know, principles don't change. Sets, reps, you know, the effects that you get from training, you know, the stress, the adaptations that we're trying to get, you know, that doesn't change. But all of those acute variables do change, you know, rest periods, um, you know, like certain exercise selection and how you put things together, they all change. All right. Obviously, athletes, we're looking at most of the time, we're looking to get neural adaptations to develop strength and power and the sort of stretch shortening cycle um, benefits. Whereas, you know, general pop, we're not really looking to um, just focus on that, right? You know, so there is some differences in how we uh, program, you know, the two. But overall, you know, I like to think there's not much difference, you know. There's not much difference. I think it's an important thing to to go into a lot as well because you see a lot. I, I remember when I first started looking at the athletic realm in terms of study and training, and you see, you, you see some absolute charlatans that are just doing stuff for the sake of stuff, right? Like yeah. people boxing in heavy gloves and throwing rugby balls and trying to make like heavy rugby balls and trying to make it um, like the sport. What I would argue is like your job as a strength coach is to get them strong and ready physically for the field. Yeah. Their actual coaches are going to be the ones that are teaching them the technique. And like, yeah, right. and because of that, the fundamentals don't necessarily change too much. But I know this is a broad question and we'll delve into it a little bit deeper, but for you, yeah. what are the key fundamentals of program design? What are the things you make sure that are in place for everybody? I, you know, um, I, first of all, I think like, you know, general programs do have a place, you know, especially for individuals that are starting out, you know, you can mm -hmm. use a general approach. However, you know, everything, I, I believe everything should be individualized because of the li limits of performance, because achieving any type of goal, whether that's fat loss, building muscle, sport performance, you know, people are very, very different, you know, although they might seem similar, similar sports, similar body shapes, they're very, very different. And that's where, you know, a good coach will be able to, you know, assess, evaluate, work with a client. And then, um, you know, individualization is you know, very, very important to promote optimal training adaptations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And like, and is there any, when you say like there are there is place for general things in training, is there any particular things that you think that are maybe not so much in the exercise selection, but anything that you think that you always look at when it comes to program? Like when you're assessing somebody, okay, what are the key things that are nearly always the first things you think about? Well, it did, the first one's obvious. Like, you know, what are their goals? You know, like, you know, you know, training, programs, periodization, whatever you do, it's going to be dependent on their goal. You know, someone training for strength, power, whatever, is very different to someone training for uh, building muscle and, and fat loss. So that that's the big key um, determinant, hmm. you know. Um, I, I, sorry, I'll just touch, you know, but also, a fund there's lots of fundamentals. That's the thing, you yeah. know. And a big fundamental is understanding, as a coach, you must understand exercise prescription and order. And, of course, you know, understanding the manipulation of volume and intensity, even mm. for fat loss, in my opinion. Mm. I, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's one of the things that's uh, overlooked when it comes to fat loss. Because 
we're it's we're in this world of more volume, more density, more volume, more density. Yeah. Yeah. But but the pe- most people are coming in for a fat loss result of people that probably sleep three, four hours a night, highly strung and highly stressed, but they can only recover from so much. And this is where I'm a big fan of a lot of the work of Mike. It's a tell because he's one of the few people that bought into the general bodybuilding training world. How much volume can people actually handle? And how do we bring that and put that in place? So you mentioned um periodization in that. And um I, I often I I often think when you're looking at training programs, I think I have like a thing I teach coaches, like my seven pillars of program design. The number one is periodization. And not because it's more or less important, but because I think periodization, once you choose that, you sort of know where you're going. You've got the overview of where things are. Um, But for you, I know you're big on your periodization models. Why is periodization important? And how do you apply it personally? Is there a certain model you use or is there a certain way you look at it? Yeah, I, I think periodization is very, very important. I mean, sports scientists, coaches, athletes of the former Eastern Bloc countries, they're the ones that are credited with developing and researching the, the concept of periodization. Mm. And it was developed because of the needs to ensure adequate recovery between training sessions, mm. you know, and optimal gains in, you know, strength and power and in order to optimize performance. So they found that they understood volume, okay, and they understood that they had to get their athletes to peak to perform at certain competitions. So they were able to understand that, okay, there's an inverse relationship between intensity, which is, you know, we know it in the weight room as load and volume. So when one's high, one's low. And that's, you know, changing. They probably do that about three to four times a year. You know, they have a traditional linear style of periodization repeated three to four times a year. It's a simple concept. As volume starts high, it drops off and intensity starts low and it increases. So that, that's where periodization, periodization came from. Um, it's quite a simple concept, um, you know, of tapering those two variables. But there's a lot of issues with terminology, where you live in the world and, you know, is it pre-season, off-season? Is it, um, you know, classified as, you know, you know different, different uh, words to describe the different phases that people might be going through? Mm. Um, yeah, I think periodization is important. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm a big fan of still, there's certainly with really beginners, sort of like a linear model of periodization. And I think, I, th- I think the reason is because when most people come in, if we're looking at the people, guys listening to this are either going to be people wanting to get in shape for yep. the first time or coaches training people wanting to get in shape for the first time. And I think it's, it's the model I'm most familiar with because most people are going to come in, they don't move well. They can't, I wouldn't be comfortable sticking loads of weight on them when they don't move well for risk of injury. So getting something, whether it's 10, 12, 15 reps, means that my exercise selection is probably going to be more stable. I'm going to be able to teach them how to move. They're going to need a lot of practice. And as they learn how to train, as they get better, I can just increase that intensity slowly to a point where they can get a really good, heavy three, four sets of six. But we'll yep. work up to that from in a few months' time. I mean, yep. Is there any particular models you like to use? Is it does it change with your athletes? You know, of outside yeah. linear periodization. Yeah. So, you know, firstly, you have like obviously we understand this, but you know, there, there there's it, training age is different to age. Okay, mm. training age and how experienced the individual is. All right, and that will dictate what sort of, in my opinion, what sort of training style and periodization strategy you use. So, if you think of a beginner, you know, a beginner every week, a beginner could probably see 50% increases in their loads 
every week, right? You know, yeah. I've seen it. You know, you, you press the press the tens, and then next and then next session they go up. Next week they go up by fifty percent. But that's because their training age is low, and the window of adaptation is so large. Whereas if you're working with someone who's a bit more intermediate to advanced, they might have a a squat of or a deadlift of two hundred kilos. They might only progress two to five percent over the year. But that's because they're so strong and experienced. They have a high training age. The window of adaptation is a lot lot smaller. So for beginners, I always use a simple classic model of linear periodization of a subtle linear approach, just like what you do. Hmm. Just slowly increase the weight, keep the reps the same. Once they've adapted or they slow down with the progress, then we can change something up. Whether that's exercise selection, reduce reduction in rest periods, which will cause a different sort of um, hormonal effect on the body, or whether that's just you know um, you know increasing the volume through sets and dropping repetitions. You know, it's different variables. But the more intermediate to advanced, I like to use the undulating model where you manipulate intensity and volume every couple of weeks or so, or for athletes, every two days. Every two days. Okay, I, I've, not, I've not seen it used so, so frequently. Why every two days rather than like every block with an athlete? Um, okay, so it would depend on where they are in their year. You know, if they're in season, we might want the start of the week to be a heavy day, um, Wednesday might be a lighter day where they work on smaller loads, 30, 40 to 60%. They might work on speed. Okay. Like a daily undulating. Yes. Yeah. Like a daily undulating. They're all forms of, uh, undulating models. There's lots of different undulating models. Yeah. And yeah. We, might, we might use that so that they get exposure to each different, um, strength, uh, athletic quality that they need. I suppose in season that's useful as well for injury prevention, right? Because like yeah. I, I look at that, it's like you don't want to be doing really, really high intensity hamstring work the day before they go out and run and pull a hamstring in the, on the field. Whereas you might do your higher volume, lower intensity stuff on that day, so they they come in and it's just a bit of blood flowing, so they can recover from it pretty well, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So like, like you know, sorry, go on, go on. no, go. On. No, I was just going to say, you know, and and that's very much true for the more ad- intermediate, advanced level athletes because they have um you know busy schedules and they they're very strong so you know doing heavy weights day or two out from a game it's just uh, not the right thing to do it just yeah would be stupid yeah, yeah so like with for the people that aren't familiar with what the undulating model is why like why if you've got a linear model and we're going from high reps and we're going down to low reps like why would you change that to a model where you're going block a high reps block a low reps and what's the advantages to that model over linear, reverse linear, conjugate? An undulating model will allow the athlete or the individual, fat loss, general pop, whatever, more exposure to exercises and variation in intensity and volume over the period of time. And that's all it is, more exposure to variation. And obviously variation is very important. It prevents a law of accommodation. And as a beginner, they don't need that. They need to stick to one thing and just drive that pattern, drive that load. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. It's just exposure to more variation in intensity and volumes and exercise selection. I was always explained it with the undulating model, as in, like, if let's say you're, you, you, you said earlier on about the the window of adaptation that they've got, right? And as you sort of train, that's going to get smaller. And when you hit that threshold, you're not really getting anything more from there. So you change that you change that stimulus as this sort of comes down a little bit. You can then bring this up, and then you repeat. And the advantage over a linear model, if you're looking at training strength and endurance, as you go down the 
this stimulus. By the time you get to strength, you really are detraining this a lot because you've been so long from doing this sort of stuff. Whereas if you sort of bounce, you sort of keep a lot more of these plates spinning. Um, you know, that's a decent analogy. Whilst you yeah, know, no, I guess, yeah, for sure, for sure, that makes sense. And like I said earlier, you know, a beginner they're going to respond very, very fast. Like I said, they can see up to 50% increases in loads every single week. Mm. No chance if you're experienced. Yeah. No chance. No chance. You're looking at 2 to 5% over the year. Could you, ima- could you imagine that? I pressed, I, well, my best for, um, in my sort of like higher volume sort of block was I pressed, pressed 40s for 10s last uh, week. These and these best, right? these and these could you imagine if I went 60 for 10 next week? <laughs> Could you, that'd be yeah, amazing a beginner mate if you do that I'm yeah. <laughs> I can love it you're a beginner yeah absolutely love it and, 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 that, and that's also why as beginners you don't need a lot of change with um, exercises you know you mm. don't need to always every two three weeks you don't always need to change the exercise with beginners Excellent. okay it's too much it's too much and I see that a lot happen a lot and I think it's 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 sometimes you get trainers doing it because they they want to keep the client engaged. And a bit of advice I was given by Johnny Jacobs, you remember Johnny? He yeah. said to me, he goes, when you're when you're thinking that the client's bored in the program, ask yourself, is the client bored or are you bored? Because yeah. you've done you've done the oh, same, yeah. obviously changing the exercise, the individualization of the program, but the same layout of program, probably three, four, five times a day, six days a week, whereas your client probably does that once a week. And so it's often they're changing too quickly. And then you've got the clients who think, I think the the way the industry set up, especially on the online coaching game, is is, is a bit for play for this. Is that they want to they hear myths like shocking the muscle, so they need to change things up regularly, or they have to get a program every four weeks because that's when the next direct debit comes out for the online coaching. And so, if you're progressing, and I've had this before, goes, oh, can I get a new program? Why? Because because it, it's because I've had done this for four weeks. Okay, are you progressing? Yeah. You enjoy the program? Yeah. Why would we change it? And, and that's it. And I mean, part of that is, you know, you as a coach, educating, teaching your client, your athlete, the whole part of the training process, you know, you know, as we always say, it's the journey, you know, they've got to learn, you've got to teach and educate your clients and people that you work with. The, you know, coaches, they have to understand the basic principles, mm. all right? How you apply it is the art of coaching and what makes someone a good coach. That might come with experience over time. It might come with your own, you know, experience with training or coach, whatever. You, but, you know, you require a system of evaluation of each training goal. And then based on factual understanding of training, which in my opinion is an evidence-based approach, is, which is important, then you make tweaks to your training session. You know, mm-hmm. like understanding physiology, energy system, but simple biomechanics, leverage, it can go a long way. Mm. Go a long way. 100%. So do you have a, a sort of, to tie off the periodization bit, like, do you have a certain length of block you like to use? I know you're obviously a big a big fan of Steph, Stefan Kazolt's work, and he's very much into yeah. three-week blocks. I mean, is there a, I know it will vary person to person, but is there a general rule of thumb you have for how long a block will last? Mate, there, there really isn't. I mean, you know, I love Stefan's work, and I use some of his concepts of periodization, but ultimately, as you know, it's down to the client and how often and how frequent they can train. There's no mm. point in me giving someone a three-week phase training five days a week and they're fucking missing two of those sessions. It's not going to work. What's the point? Yeah. You know. So you, we've got to be realistic. Don't spe- don't set expectations too high. 
you know, don't tell your client you need to get in five days a week, you know, meet them halfway. Um, But generally it's easy for clients and athletes to work on a monthly cycle, you know, like every Mm. four weeks we change. Mm. Sometimes that might be every six or eight weeks. Yeah. And, you know, for myself at the moment, I'm doing every two weeks. So yeah, it depends on the individual, the goals, and there's a lot of variables, you know, as you know. And I think I think the key thing in there is like when you're looking at changing phases, a lot of people have these massive overhauls and change in phase changes. And I think that that's where a lot of people go wrong because it's like they they said they've progressed slowly over a six-week block. They change everything, all the exercise action, all the reps, all the sets. And then for the yeah. first two to three weeks, they're just trying to find their weights again. And they've lost this almost almost a whole phase worth of block of training in fumbling around. Whereas when you, I'm sure when you're talking about changing phases, you're like, okay, my exercise pretty much stay the same, but maybe the reps change or maybe the sets change. So it's very similar, but just these little micro adjustments that just sort of keeps things progressing, right? Small, fine micro adjustments. That's all is needed. Mm. Your body is, your body is so like, as much as your body is so smart at, adapting to anything it's given when it comes to exercise people a lot of people change too often definitely they change things too often and they never see results because they're just hopping program hopping and manipulating things and doing all these wacky methods that they get off t nation and online you know not to discredit anyone that writes for t nation but um you know what i mean so Mm. yes that's my opinion on that so a big topic that comes up in the industry recently, which I had down here, was like the topic of whether you should or shouldn't train to failure. So obviously some people say that, you know, you should even doubt train harder. I'm one of the, to some extent, one of those people. And then you've got people that say you always should leave one to two reps in the tank. Where, where's your viewpoint on the should you train to failure argument? You know, to be honest, everyone needs to learn a big part of training is learning how to get out of your comfort zone. So everyone needs to be exposed to training to failure at some point. Hmm. How it's done is, um, you know, based on your philosophy, whether you get them to do drop sets or isometric holds to failure, they're all still methods of failure. And I think everyone needs to be exposed to that at some point to understand what true hard work is. Um, there is some studies that suggest, that show that, um, you know, you can leave reps in reserve and still get the same results as going balls out. I think um, if you're training twice a week, it's probably better to go hard and go to the failure. And if mm. you're training more frequently, three, four, five, six days a week, it's probably best not to go to failure. But also it depends on the person's stress and recovery ability. You know? Mm. Yeah, that's my opinion. I think both reps in reserve, leaving reps in reserve, and um, perceived exertion, both methods should be used. I think, I think when it comes to the reps and reserves sort of model and leaving on two reps and reserve, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not going to say I'm not a fan of it, but I, I, I do think that there's one glaring hole in this argument. So you're saying there are studies suggesting that you can get similar results by leaving one to two reps in reserve. And on paper, oh, that's, yeah. that, that sounds, that, on paper, that sounds good. And then, I know people where that, you know, if I took, if I wrote your program tomorrow, you went, Simon, write me your next block. And I wrote that. I'm like, okay, cool. I reckon that's probably going to be pretty accurate if we do put some of that in. But I think this is where looking, being able to read between the lines of studies and what they're not testing for and how it doesn't really work in the real world um, yeah. with maybe less equipment to test this stuff is 
understand how many people truly understand what one to two reps in reserve actually is. Yes. Especially the beginner. Probably. You get a client who will go, how many you got left? I've got two. I'm going to kind of challenge sets in a first block of training. So I'll go, how, I want to find out where your one to two rep max in reserve is. So let's say two rep max. So two reps in reserve, set one. One rep in reserve, set two. Last set, I want you to go as many as you can. Because so often you'll go, how many you got left? Two. How many got left? One. Then you get an extra 18. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah, yeah. I think like there's a difference between effort and exertion. So effort mm. is intent to perform reps with maximum concentric acceleration and speeds. Mm. Exertion is proximity to failure in a set. Yeah. So failure, failure is a funny one because you can have someone who, like you said, is an experienced beginner. They don't understand what full exertion is. Or and, and do you have to take right? them there? You have to take them there to them to find That's out what, what I'm saying. So reserve, depending right? on your um, depending on your philosophy and how you like to implement your training, you know, my way of getting someone to failure is going to be different to yours. You know, whether that's a pure isometric hold or fucking drop sets or mechanical um, advantage set, whatever. You know what I mean? There's different strategies, but everyone needs to be exposed to it. It's a funny one because you can have an individual who's, you know, reserved, soft, they pull out. You know what I mean? Where some people that are hard, you say leave two reps in reserve. They've worked really fucking hard thinking there's two reps in reserve, but no, they, they, they've just gone one rep in reserve. So, mm. you know what I mean? It's not two reps in reserve. It's one rep in reserve. You can't do one, one more. And that's where, you, you know, like I would sometimes use technology to monitor that. So I would monitor velocity. Mm. So use, I've got something called a push band, which goes onto the arm, the arm or the bar. And that contracts speed. Okay, so it's a speed device. Okay, um, an accelerometer. So it measures peak and mean uh, velocity. So when you have a decrease, if you have a decrease um, in speed, then you know that person was approaching failure. And there's different, like you know, there's some different data to indicate whether they were at failure or not, or whether they're being honest or etc. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's that's interesting as well because you often see, certainly with the, when you're looking at beginners, how many people at the first sign when they start failing concentrically, so on the lift, rather than yeah. you see an advanced person will slow down. And this is where your device will come in really well. Like, okay, they're slowing down, they're getting close to failure. Where some people will hit that first wall and will just wriggle to try and get that to last a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. I think it's, you. I think it, when you're still at that stage, there's a term I, I, I had from an old boss of mine who caught, had the term successful failure, which I use quite a lot. I mean, and I always tell my clients, it's a way to fail a rep. And I don't want to see you fail right. a rep because you wriggled out of position. I want you to, when you kind of get to a position where you can't even see a black pool line, because people can see it on the YouTube, yeah. they get to there. And rather than letting them go to try and move it, you just hold it for dear life. And nine times out of 10, that rep will be finished. You'll get that rep, but it'll be grinding slow. But That's at it. the very least, you hold tension. If you go to hypertrophy, the name of the game is sure. getting tension, holding tension, creating tension. Until it hurts. Yeah, um, that's right. And and, and that, that's where like mo- like the mean of contraction is important. Whether we go to, you know, weight training, we, we're only really getting to concentric failure, concentric, the shortening of a muscle. We only get pushed to concentric failure. But you could go to isometric failure as well, or you can go to eccentric failure and isometric yeah. failure, right? And that's where you do, you know, concentric, eccentric methods where you, you, all right, you can't do any more and then you get a spotter to do you know, force reps, you control the negative, they help you pull it back up. Or you do two-one methods where you, you you push the tricep thing down and you pull it up with one arm. 
there's lots of different methods to overload eccentric mm. um, loads just to get even more stress through that system and muscle tissue. Yeah. So going on to, obviously, we, we've mentioned now that people should be training really, really hard. And I think they, we obviously want to make sure that people are recovering. So the other topic I think is very much started to come out more in the industry, which I think is good that it is, is people start to learn how to match their nutrition to their training. Mm. Now, obviously, like, obviously you, have, you have a good working knowledge of nutrition, but you are a, a very much a, a training-focused guy. So when it comes to – we talked about energy systems earlier, and we talked about the extra demands from certain trainings. So yeah. what things would you think about when it comes to matching nutrition with the training? Is there certain blocks where your nutrition would look very different, like there were certain higher carbs in certain phases or higher fats in other phases? Like how do you go about making sure that they can recover and adaptively adapt, sorry, yeah, adapt easily from the training session? Yeah. So obviously calories, are, you know, we all know calories are the most important thing. All right, now if people are under eating specific macros and still not hitting the calories, it might not mean anything, you know. You know, you've got to get your calories in for how much um, you weigh and the volume and output of work you're doing. So, obviously, with you know high rep sort of work, you've got to make sure that you're getting enough calories. Obviously, goal dependent. From a macro perspective, protein critical for performance. It's the most important thing for fat loss, building muscle, performance, anything. Protein is the number one thing. The second most important thing is carbohydrates for performance. Mm. Without a doubt, you know, I've not seen many people who can do a lot of work on minimal carbohydrates. Certainly outside of pure beginners where it's a lot of neurological change, right? Yeah. Yep. 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 That, that's my take on it. Like, it's quite simple, really. You know, like yeah. make sure the athletes, the individuals get the right amount of calories, make sure they push the protein targets, hit them as protein targets. And then um, depending on the volume and um, what they're doing in the weight room and outside the weight room, make sure they get the right amount of carbohydrates. Do you even, do you ever like, especially when you've got people in either athletes in off season, when you're looking to make them physically bigger or whether it's um, someone who just wants to build tissue or add more food after the end of the diet, do you ever play around with different training systems in order to allow them to get more food in? Like going into a higher volume, higher density program, at the same time as ramping up carbohydrates? Is that something you tend to do or do you tend to look yep. at those things relatively separately? No, I have done that. I have done that, yeah. Um, you know, generally athletes, young people, you know, you know, they're playing sport, they're doing a lot of work. Generally, we keep them in shape all year round. Hmm. So for them to, you know, increase, and normally they're having a lot of carbohydrates, you know, you know and if we want to build some muscle, we don't always crank carbs high because in the off season, their, their work and their output is being drastically reduced anyway. Yeah. So they can continue eating like normal and still see gains in the hypertrophy building muscle department. So because yeah, they, the they create a surplus by moving less, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's just manipulating um, training units mm. or doing less work. Yeah. So they have more energy to go towards that building muscle adaptations so that that's like you know without a doubt very important um but i have pushed you know high volume big workouts in the off season or with people trying to build muscle and just crank their carbs up normally i do like to sort of taper that taper them in so that they can get used to eating more food and more volumes of food and and stuff like that um mm. yeah what, what do you prefer 
um, played around and doubled in that sort of stuff? It's hard because obviously, like the the thing the thing for me, I'd I I have done and I tend mm. to like to. It's mm. but it, it really depends on the kind of client. Like, yeah. It, this what you write on paper, what I'd like to do, and what happens when a client has a bad night's sleep or misses a workout or randomly goes on holiday or they, you know, they just they don't follow the diet. And it's more just about like, okay, well, how can I get them closer to the calories before I start playing around with how much carbohydrates they utilize in the training cycle? Um, yeah. But generally what I tend to do with, with a, a more general population fat loss client is that I want to find out what is the max amount of calories and in particular carbohydrates I could get them on while yep. still dropping body fat. So they're performing well, yep. the health's in a good place, the thyroid's in a good place because carbohydrates have a massive impact on thyroid health, obviously deficit surplus level depending. So I, I, I will generally start people around about 10 calories per pound, low-ish carbs, but not low yep. carb. I'm not meat and veg. I'm like probably about 100 grams of carbs. Yep. Find a routine that works with them. And then as they start to learn how to train and as they learn how to contract tissue, I will then maybe do my next phase will be, let's say I'll do three sets, 10 to 12 in a linear model. I will go four sets, eight to 10. So that'll be, there's more volume in that training session. There's more intensity in that new block. And I will then try and use that phase to ramp up carbohydrates for the first, let's say most of my best results around about 20 weeks. If I have a system, there'll be like the first eight to 12 weeks i'll be looking to try and increase food if i can and then 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 if they want to continue getting leaner i pull from there if they don't i keep pushing that's the reason why so 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 you mentioned um you mentioned about thyroid health and stuff like that like how would you what would be the big indicators apart from getting blood work obviously what would be the indicators that you sort of get from them from a questionnaire like to know whether they have good thyroid health you know Um, um I will never know for a fact if they have bad thyroid health unless they come in and say, I've got bad thyroid health. And then I'll be looking at what the medication that they have on, they have it. Yeah. And ideally, blood work is the way of finding out what's the issue because it could be it could be that they're not producing any thyroid. Is it, is it a conversion from T4 to T3? Is it being over-converted to reverse T3? So there's a lot of things that could be going on here. Mm. If I don't have blood work, often I can tell from what the medication is, what the issue yeah. is. Sure. So if someone's got thyroxine, then thyroxine is T4. So I know that it's probably a production issue. If that's the case, depends how far down the line they've gone. But the, the, the thing is building food up and building into a surplus is going to be the way that's going to assist that production. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if it's conversion issue, that gets down the real on supplementation. Let's say on the podcast, like, you know, yep. iodine, B vitamins, they think can help, but I don't want to advise that. Yep. I'm not a doctor. But yep. Um, when it comes to the things that I think are in more in my realm as a coach, when it comes to thyroid health is people often say, I can't lose weight, my thyroid, or oh, I need a refeed because my thyroid's dropped, but it's, and our new coaches will go, oh, it's, it's thyroid or there's too much cortisol. That's why they haven't lost this week, but it's a gradual thing. And it's if you put someone on a deficit and they've been in a deficit for far too long, you'll start to notice things like they'll become sluggish. They'll become cold. Their body temperature will go down, which is easy yep. to track now. Every building it's in the world. One. That's a big one, yeah. Every building in the world will test your temperature now going into it. So you have an idea of when you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Girls will get cold legs and thighs and things like that. Oh, they um, get cold, cold hands and feet. Yeah, cold exactly. Feet. Big one. So those are things that I'll start to look at. Um, appetite. Yeah, me too. That's the sort of stuff I look at there. Mm. Yep. And then just then play around with there. And then 
Yeah. I, I've, if, if I get to a point where I think someone really, really needs is needing of a bump up in thyroid, you're probably looking at at least at least two days of high back to maintenance calories or not above. But I would say three to seven, probably more realistic. Okay. Um, cool. Going into training itself and actually building out this program. Now, let's start off with like your indicator lifts. Like, do you have go-to exercises that you would use for indicator lifts for your clients? Um, and on how on how do you determine what an indicator lift is for them? Yeah. And the A so, you know, every question you ask, I could always answer it with it. It depends, right? But generally speaking, let's say I'm working, like, let's just, like, you know, athletic population, yeah? I always mm-hmm. try and follow... Um, you know, movement similarities. So do they jump? Do they twist? Do they throw? Do they push? Do they they pull in their sport? What sort of movements, you know, in the weights room relate to that? The kinetic similarities. Do they, you know, Mm. is there vertical or horizontal forces? What sort of power outputs, peaks and averages, ground contact times are they using in their sports? And then neurophysiological similarities, you know, heart rate peaks and averages, VO2 intensities, outputs, like metabolic outputs and stuff like that. That's the complex stuff for athletes. There's a famous sports scientist, Virginovsky. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He, they, he put this thing together called um, dynamic correspondence. And it has five principles. Amplitude or direction of movement, the accentuated region of force production. Well, I won't explain what these are. I'll just list mm-hmm. them off. The dynamics yeah. of the effort, rate and time of force production, and the last one, the regime of muscular work. And they basically mean you know, you know, if an athlete is a uh, football player, soccer player, that's how I've got to say it in um, Australia, you know, <laughs> what, what sort of movements occur during, what, 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 are the, what are the things that they need to be a good athlete? All right, and then how do we transfer that into the weights room? So yeah, like cable rotations ain't going to work for a boxer, all right? Mm. Because a boxer's power output is different. So that would be classified as um, the accentuated region of, of, of force production. Maybe we'll do medicine ball throws because how they produce force is different. You know, they don't produce constant force when they box. Um, so things like that is what I look at. Yeah, dynamics mm. of the effort. Is it plyometric or ballistic or dynamic-based sport? How do I put that into the gym's, gym setting? When it comes to general pop, building muscle and fat loss, I don't have any go-to exercises. I just mm. look to... All right, if it's fat loss, what's going to hit them hard? What level yeah. are they at? If they can't fucking squat, I'm not going to get them to squat. You know what I mean? I'll get them to leg press or step up or whatever, depending on their mechanics, their skill level, and their injuries and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But for building muscle, yeah, it's a little bit different. We want to target certain muscle groups, um, depending on the sort of program strategy we use. I mean, we know bench press. It's not really a great chest builder. You know, isn't it like 70, 80% comes from the triceps? So mm-hmm. it's not that that's going to be my, my, my main go-to for my chest workout, but, you know, it does allow me to um, apply lots of mechanical tension. So I might want to use that at the beginning of my workout. So indicator lifts, I don't really have for a general pop, really. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've had a weird relation with indicator lifts in, 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 with my training with clients because I went for a while, like, you know, like everybody going into training when I was 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, something from a PT, everyone's got a squat bench deadlift, right? Uh, so I forced everyone to squat bench deadlift. And then I, I, I came to work in London and I re- everyone went down the mechanics bandwagon and maybe in the early adopters of mechanics stuff, people went down it too far. 
you're not built to do this, so you do this instead. And they weren't wrong, but they never ever gave me a path to see how close I could get to doing it. Yeah. So I never got any better at movement. Yeah. And I actually got worse because I didn't learn the skill. So like when I look at people now, like it obviously depends on the goal, but I I I will then look at my 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 sort of the main sort of lifts that I will sort of look at. So some form of vertical push, some form of vertical pull, some form of squat, some form of hip extension um, movement, um, and a, a unilateral squat and a bilateral squat. Yep. So I've got sort of those sort of things, and I have a path. I have like, and these are, I don't like the term progressions regressions because. I like using the example of a hip thrust to an incline hyper. They're not progression or regression. They're just different. One challenge is more short range, one challenge is more mid range. Um, but I look at, right, okay, why is series the only things that are going to be the most load bearing, the stuff that I can use to be able to decide what my other lifts are going to be, something yeah. I can work on weaknesses. Makes sense. But yeah. everybody will fall within that spectrum. If back squats here, and let's say leg extension is my first bilateral squat progression from stability. When I say progressions, I took stability progressions. So yep. upper squat, the front squat, safety bar squats, back squat, you know? Yep. So most people will fall somewhere in the middle and will never squat. But at least we're getting them closer to where their squat is or yep. finding a squat that works for them and plugging the gaps. So yes. if someone's like me who is got long, long femur, short tip fit, my squat's going to look more like a good morning than a squat. And it's going to be wide stance. It's going to be heels elevated. So my accessory work, which we'll go on to in a second, is going to be more hat squats, leg extensions, split squats, stuff that gets the quads working. But someone who's got this perfectly upright squat, this little short three foot four motherfucker, would probably have more, more good mornings, more leg curls, more deadlifts, more hip extension work because the glutes don't really come into the squat too much. Yeah. You know, and so that's sort of where I look at my indicator list now. It's like there, there's a an idea with squat bench and dead sort of in the forefront of our mind, but most Sorry. people won't get there. You know, and onto your bench press comment, like, I think it can be a good exercise for chest if you have a barrel rib cage. Yeah. But most people don't have a barrel rib cage. Most people aren't that lucky. I'm certainly not. So for me, dumbbell presses, flyers will be a better chest ball than bench press will ever be. But I still like so, to bench. So, so why, why would the bench press be beneficial if you have more of that barrel rib cage? There's, there's a better line of pull, right? So if you look at somebody who's, I feel sorry for anyone to listen to this on audio. You're going to have to try and work with me. And if someone's got like a high angle coming out of their neck and they've got, you can rest a pint like on their rib cage. The ability here, if I arch up here, that ability to pull my arm across, which is what the pet does, is pulling the arm across the midsection is going to be greater. If I'm here, there's hardly any ability to pull here. So it just becomes front delt. And this is why two people can go into the gym and go get on the bench and one of them goes, oh, man, my chest's so sore today. And the other person goes, really? I just feel front delts. I must be doing it wrong. They're not. It's just not the right exercise for them. That's it. You know? Individualization, right? Individualization. And for that person, the bar probably shouldn't touch their chest. If you've got long arms and you're trying to touch the bar to your chest, you're probably losing out if your goal is to build a chest. I'm here. I get as far as I can and I get stuck. That's probably about an inch off my chest. I can keep my chest working there. But if I go further, everything's going to roll forward. I'm going to lose position and we're taking tension away. So you know, that person, I'll put like the hip thrust pad and touch yep. that. So we can make sure that every rep is replicable, every yep. single set, but we're not, we're not pushing them to a range that they don't own. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the accessory work. So you've got, you found whatever your initial lift is, right? Obviously individual to the sports, the person to the athlete. Now, general thumb strength training, I think you think the same way 
is that your B series, your accessory work is stuff that's going to be still relatively compound and big lift, but things that are going to push up the main lift. Is that the way you think or is there a different rationale you have with your B series? Um, no, that's, that's definitely, uh, you know, I just wanted to say like, you mm. know, your idea and concepts of, you know, having those in the forefront, you know, those deadlifts, mm. those presses, that, yeah, that, that is also my you know, my, my way of thinking as well. You yeah. know, just think of that across. And so, yes, my accessory work is always, not always, it is a lot of the time to help push those main priority exercises up. Mm. But at the same time, also trying to increase the global athleticism of my individual. Yeah, you know, whether that's like as an athlete or physique athlete, you know. Um, you know, you know, because I'm so much into movement quality and um being a strong motherfucker you know i always want whether it's to fat loss or look good hypertrophy like i always want them to move better you know mm. what i mean so if i can add to their global athleticism then that's in my b series yeah yeah and when you talk about global athleticism like what obviously other than plugging weaknesses give me an example of how it would work in terms of improving someone's global athleticism if someone doesn't know what that means I think um, I think the the word sounds more complex than it actually is. I think um, <laughs> you know it's just pushing those lifts up, you know, and not doing stupid exercises in their B series of of a program, you know, like mm. you know, do something that is big and compound that helps their first exercise that isn't just you know leg extensions. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose it'd be also like as well, if you're looking at global athleticism, you're not using it to pull up the lifts. My example of looking the way someone squats and using the B-series to address the things that aren't getting enough love in that lift because yeah. of the way yeah. they move, right? Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, for sake of argument, if, you, if someone wants to bench in their A-series or you think it's going to be a good lift, if they've got a flatter rib cage, you know there's going to be a lot of choice at work. You're probably going to have more chest exercises, more isolated, maybe dumbbell presses, flies, floor presses, in the B series where someone's got a big rib cage and maybe it's not as much choice at work in the bench, you might have more, you know, I don't know, close get bench press, California press, skull crushers, that sort of stuff yeah. in the B series. And, to plug and, the weaknesses, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, it depends, you know, on the sort of training, um, the periodization model you're using, you know, and how frequent that person is training, you know, like mm. if they're only training twice a week, you might not want to do something in the B series that pushes the A up, you know, you might want to do another big movement pattern, you know, you might yeah. have, there's no reason why you can't bar build um, squat and then in your Bs go and do some trap bar deadlifts. You know what I mean? Why not? You know, it mm. depends on the frequency and, you know, and, and the training system you're using. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So with, um, what about with your C-series and your tertiary exercises? Like, how do you sort of look at programming them? Are they still with the A-series in mind? Are they more physique focused? I was, again, I know the answer, it depends. But sort of like, is there any sort of things you're sort of looking at including in those into the way thought process you know if i think of physique trying to you know build muscle on a frame you know i'll always try and tag something in there that's going to help um lagging body parts mm. yeah like you know if it's someone more athletic then we're gonna you know put exercises in there that bring up um you know weak muscles weaker strength muscles you know or remedial, rotate, stuff. remedial stuff yeah like yeah. rotate cuff work whatever it may be you know um calf work etc for fat loss whatever that might tax them a little bit more and it help them with their a's and b's 
you know mm. so yeah, yeah yeah it's very goal dependent i think it's a very good explanation very general, though. i know mm. but you know again we always take our method of um methodological methodological approach I know you know, mean, anyway. <laughs> how we like to like how yeah. i like to train my yeah. clients and what method i believe in you know like yeah, yeah, they're, they're hard questions to answer, really, because yeah. it depends, you know? I, I agree. I think, I think when I look at the series, I think I, I'm coming this from a more physique-focused world, you know, maybe, mm. you know, I know you deal with plenty of that as well. But I look at that, when I look at two things I look at, it's like, right, if I want to improve someone's movement capabilities, one, right, so I'm looking slightly in that remedial headspace, like, if I can help someone move better in this first phase of training, that's going to make give me less headaches in the second and third phase of training because yeah. things that you can do bigger lifts quicker, you can get yeah. more out of lifts, you can do you know that sort of stuff. They're more stable, so which means if they're more stable, they can produce more force. My favorite Charles Pollock and whatever is you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, I'm looking okay. They've come in for a particular goal in terms of how they want to look, and from a physique standpoint, I'll look at their sort of their their before pictures and go right what is the weakest body part because i think you're only as big as your weakest body part and yeah. using me as an example so i don't offend anyone if you look at pictures of my back my triceps are probably my smallest body part getting better but smallest body part so my triceps make my back look smaller my back does not make my triceps look bigger so i was like okay so i'm looking to bring that up and then could i kill two birds with one stone and the, the example i always use is like okay if i want to give someone more range and open up the peck um, if I want to get someone, you know, elongating the length and range of their bicep, that sort of stuff. If I come into an incline bicep curl, I'm having an exercise now that allows them to move better through the shoulder and get some more shoulder extension at the same time as growing their biceps. So it's not me going, or oh, could you just sit and do this external rotation drill? And the client's bored to tears. Like, do you know what? How about we get something in this position here? How about we get overhead with the tricep work? So now you're still getting big triceps, but we're actually now improving the psoriasis ability to move the shoulder blade and things like this. Yeah. So if you can kill two birds with one stone, the client's getting a bit of what Definitely. they want, but you're making exactly. sure you get a bit of what they need. And yeah. you can't always do that with certain muscles, but you'd be surprised how often. A prone yeah, trap yeah, three sure. will sure. get someone a prone trap three will get someone better lower traps and better delts. And that's it. Like, you know, the way I the way I look at that as well is like. You know, if you're doing a session, like, why would you ever, you know, why would you ever chuck it? You know, if you're doing a shoulder session, mm. would you ever chuck in lateral raises to start the session? Yes or no? No. Why not? Oh, if I was doing a shoulder session, would I? Yeah. Oh, I would argue sometimes yes. But exactly. Rarely. Yeah. I was hoping you said yes sometimes. Yeah. Depend, depending on yeah. where, what phase you're in. Well, la lateral raises, lateral raises are singly the best exercise for delts ever. Yeah, exactly. And why would you, if you, okay, so if you did that, why would you do it? Why would I do it? Um, yeah. Simple answer. Why would you throw lateral dumbbell raises or whatever, cable, whatever, in the beginning of the workout, of a hypertrophy workout to hit the shoulders? If it's just yeah. shoulders and nothing else? Yeah. They are the most effective, most efficient exercises to do the job. So I want them to hit it while they're fresh. Yeah, exactly. So you, you, you're using that to exhaust the muscle tissue. So sometimes when you're working with people, you don't need to add your 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 seeds at the end. You know, just front load it at the beginning of the session, and then you know, then go through your squats or whatever, or your bench press, right? You know, hmm. you know I, I, I think I think I think there's a general front load it. Yeah, front load it. Luke 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 Lehman talks about this quite a lot. He talks about this. There's there is general rules of how to write programs, but rules are meant to be broken. So general rule is 
A-series, the things that require the most stability demands when you're fresh. B-series, slightly bigger lifts that still require a little bit of stability. C-series, the stuff that you can just do when you're tired. That's the rules. That's how you would follow 90% of your program design. But there are rules are meant to be broken. And that's when he came up with like backloaded structural balance stuff, where he's like, you do some loaded stretching at the start. You open up the hips and get someone a bit of extra range. Then you do a drill at that length and range. Then you go into a back squat. Now, I probably wouldn't give a complete beginner that phase because I don't want to fatigue them going into the big lift. But for somebody who maybe wants to do some structural balance work, it's got a year or two of training under their belt. What a great method of actually like, Making stretching work for you rather than just endless monotonous yeah, stretch. That makes sense. And that's another Definitely. conversation, another episode. But um, <laughs> cool. So going into then just to te- finishing off a little bit into, I had one question on tempo and velocity because I know that's something that you focus a lot your time on. But the first, you know, when a lot of people here are going to be um, training for building muscle or losing fat. So when it comes to training for strength versus training for hypertrophy, other than rep ranges. How do those types of programs differ? Well, when you're training for strength, you are trying to get neural adaptations. When you're trying Mm -hmm. to train for building muscle, you're looking for morphological adaptations. You know, uh, there is a crossover. Hypertrophy intensities, 60 to 80% work best. 6 to 12 reps work best. Classically, we know volume as reps times sets. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you want to push volume as a driver. Um, However, tension threshold is very, very important also. And we mm. must meet that tension threshold and create mechanical tension, which is heavy ass weights. So that's, you know, that's the strength side. So <laughs> to build muscle, you still need to apply mechanical tension. This yeah. is where a variation of both work well for hypertrophy and strength. Mm. So, you know, <clears throat> you know, with, with hypertrophy, you want to create workouts that lead to drastic acute fatigue in the neuromuscular performance of your session that mm. accumulates more blood lactate and um, a considerable acute hormonal effect women tend to fatigue less faster than men mm. and that's probably because they lift lighter loads i think that's the main reason and i think, so. I think they have a better ability to replenish glycogen faster as well but i think um i think lighter yeah. loads have a lot to do with that yeah i, I you know they're the main two differences mm. You know what I mean? So obviously strength, low reps, heavy ass weight makes sense. Long rest periods. Mm. We're the opposite for the hypertrophy difference. When it, what about training for fat loss? Because this is something that like you'll see done wrong tons and tons of times. People are training. They aren't giving you the answer already, but training for fat loss, where their exercise section is based around fat loss. When you're training for fat loss, do you train for fat loss or do you train for hypertrophy and then let the diet do the fat loss? Um. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, nutrition is the most important thing. You need to apply the calorie deficit for fat loss. Without that, nothing much is going to change. But you know, and and that's I know what you're saying because training is just the stimulus. It's what you do with the other twenty three hours of the day mm-hmm. where those adaptations occur. Is what more is more important for fat loss? It doesn't matter how many calories your watch says you burn. <laughs> um, but saying that. You know, when you're training, maybe you do want to emphasize workouts that promote a sort of global hormonal cascade and, again, those drastic acute fatigue, um, you know, changes throughout. So German body composition style workouts work very well. Hmm. Circuits, uh, stuff like that. Um, you know, there's many ways to train for fat loss. 
you know. When it comes to um, periodizing fat loss, do you look at like, I know Stefan is a very big fan of if he wants to, certainly he wants fat loss in his athletes because he can't go too low on the calories in season. He needs to play around more with the training and he works a lot with increasing density block to block. Is that something you do when it comes to fat loss workouts? Um, not really. I don't really work with any athletes that are too fat or overweight, you know, like mm. I don't really see anyone that, I mean, you know, maybe in the off season, you know, but generally speaking, athletes are doing so much skill work and field work or whatever. They don't get out of shape, you know, like they, they know when they need to cut down and stuff, you know, they get caliper tested at their clubs and at their, you know, uh, sports, you know, but I don't really do that. No, I don't if, really do that if, would you look at that sort of stuff? If you, let's say you came back and worked in a body competition gym again in London, if you ever did that, would you look at that in terms of training or would you just focus on, let's use this training to maintain muscle mass as much as possible? Obviously, you're obviously looking at both, but you know, the sort of aim I'm getting at is like, do you actually, do you play around too much with changing the approach you take over a three to four block phase, a macro cycle, when a client's goal is fat loss compared to if a client's goal was hypertrophy? Um it depends on the experience of the individual, their training mm. age, you know, like I said, training age is different. A beginner, you know, you can, yeah, it's a hard question to ask. I don't really change it too much. No, this no. workouts look very similar. The mm. workouts look very similar. Maybe at the end of the workouts, it might look a bit different, you know, for fat loss sort of stuff. And we might just tax them with more metabolic work at the end, conditioning, air bikes, sleds, prowlers, that sort of stuff. Athletes. Yes. yes sometimes that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Build their muscle a little bit different, I think. Mm. You know. Yeah, I, I, I very much don't. If that think. answers your question. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like... I, I've, I've dramatically dropped the amount of necessary metcon that I do with clients uh, since, since leaving our last employer, where the, the track and the sleds were commonplace. Yeah. And, and I think there's an element of like, there's, if someone comes in with really poor aerobic health, really high blood pressure, listening, that's a different kind of story. Um, yeah. But a lot of that I get them to do outside of their sessions because I've never like a lot of times yeah. I see it with coaches go. Oh, We've got to make sure that we give them the experience. And I'm like, rarely, rarely do we get a client go, can we skip this set of bicep curls so I can get on the prowler and the air bike? I love that bit. Like, they don't enjoy it. It, it doesn't burn hardly any calories. Like, what am I doing it for? I'd rather just give them an extra set of volume on something it's that's going to both. And that's it. Like, it's probably their previous experience of what they think it's doing, you know? Like, mm. how many coaches think Epoch has an effect, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It yeah, doesn't yeah. really have an effect, you know, um, burning calories after your workout. It's, it's small, small, small. But some people do like that stuff, you know. I, look, I work with a lot of people, you know. They come in and say, oh, I want to do more conditioning and stuff like that, you know. Um, I never get those people. Yeah, I do. I do. I mm. do all the time. I get people like that all the time. They love it. But once they learn how to, once they get really strong in the weight room, then they hate it. They yeah. hate it because now they're lifting heavier loads. They can produce more force, more power. Airdynes aren't fun anymore, you know, like yeah. prowlers. We've got to load that shit really heavy. Now they're doing high-intensity training. A lot of people, they're not really doing high-intensity training, what they think is high-intensity training, right? Mm. Yeah. I also think, would you keep – and this is again, we'll, we'll do a whole episode on energy systems at some point in training. But, uh, yeah, I would also look at keeping that stuff away from the training session if possible. I'd rather – Make your training session your training session. If you can come back and do some 
hit work, if I'm going to put hit in your program, if that's something which I rarely do these days, I will put it separate to your training session. Um, I, I've had people do it in the same session at the end. I've had people do mm. it at the beginning. I've had a front-loaded conditioning sometimes. Interesting. For my older population, injured people, I front-load their conditioning sometimes. Mm. But at the beginning of the workout, then we go on to our weights. Mm. So going off of the topic where we're, the last question I have for you here, um, so concentric versus eccentric loading for general population clients. This is something I came to recently where so I've had people say to me that concentric is safer for people, so better for gen pop because they can, you know, it, they don't they can re, don't have a struggle with recovery from eccentric load. Some people say that eccentric is more effective because the effect it's going to have on tension and things like this and control end ranges. What's your take on concentric versus on eccentric lifts? Like a floor well, press or a pin press uh, where you sort of just drop it over a slow control, full dumbbell press or barbell press? Well, I mean, you know, like when you're doing eccentric focus work, there will be soreness, no doubt. Mm. I don't always think that's because of doing eccentrics causes lots of soreness. I think a lot of the time it's just people aren't prepared to do it. Mm. You know, they haven't been prepared to do it because listen, when, when someone experienced an excessive stimulus or a novel program or session, your body will start with an inflammatory response, you know, like, and eccentrics just going to do that a little bit more, you know, like mm. you so therefore you have to expose people to regular stimulus of eccentric training. You know, you can't just go into something eccentric loaded. Whereas our weights room activities are very concentric based, you know, we, we work concentrically to failure. We know eccentrically you can produce approximately about 120% more than concentric force and up to 180, 200% more, you know, so that that's big, heavy loads if you're going to do eccentric work, but going down to the basics, I think, um, I think they should both be used. Like, you know, I don't think, you know, you can do eccentric training with submaximal loads. You just basically manipulate in time that's spent under tension. You add a pause in the bottom of the squat, you know, go mm. down slowly, add a pause in the bottom of the squat, come back up, go down in four seconds. That's not dangerous. Just mm. that's teaching someone how to that's teaching someone how to move well. You know, like and you can make the it, argument, it, sorry to cut you off there, but you can make the you make the argument as well with eccentric stuff that you can produce handle more loads on an eccentric focused training session. But are you actually handling more loads? Or is it the fact oh. that you're actually decelerating the weight on an eccentric? That you're actually not actually lifting more weight. If I've got to generate oh. more force to lift yeah, that yeah, 100 yeah. kilo barbell. Well, and that, that's different. There, there's different types of, you know, you can eccentrically, you can work uh, with submaximal weights and eccentrically can work with supramaximal weights. Obviously, yeah. that is supramaximal work, you know, working at 130% of concentric failure. Mm. Okay. So if, you, if your one weight max is 100 kilos, you to do super maximal lift eccentrics, you have to work higher than 100 kilos. You have to work, like mm. you know, between you know 101 percent up upwards. You know, mm. that that that's for advanced individuals. That's why I don't dig when you get people that can't do chin ups that are fairly beginners, and you're giving them eccentrics. I hate it because that's a super maximal technique. That's very very intermediate to advanced. They shouldn't be doing that. But you can use sub-maximal eccentrics which is the lowering of a weight very slowly i think that's very very safe because look eccentric training it has a low metabolic cost all right 
it relies greatly on passive tissue and tendons. Okay. So it's going to recruit those passive tissues and tendons more than just concentric based training. Right. There's a high capacity to develop intra muscular tension. So that's how you develop the skill. You know, you, you learn how to intra muscularly develop tension and, you know, it helps change the stress curve, meaning that it can lower the like injury risk of injury. It can lower the risk of injury. So eccentric training develops skill, deceleration capabilities better than concentric based training will, you know? So it, I think isometrics, eccentrics, then sort of concentric movement, movement patterns come next. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. That's how I look across that. That's how I would go across that sort of, um, yeah. You know, yeah. That's how yeah. I would go. Across. Good explanation. Totally makes sense. Yeah. And I think like even with the sub, super, super maximal eccentric work, right. It's advanced it, stuff. It's advanced stuff. And I also, I don't, but I don't necessarily think you're handling more load. Yes. There's more load on the bar, but the actual amount of force going through the muscle is probably very similar because for me, if I'm pressing a hundred kilo weight, I need to generate enough force in the tissues to accelerate and push through 100 kilos whereas well, on the way down i'm only decelerating so i could put 110 115 on the bar but the actual force that's going through the joints may be the same because of the actual the difference in output that i'm doing if that makes sense the difference you know well, i've got to overcome yeah, it rather yeah, than yeah, yeah but this is this is the thing right there there's there's is different population for general pop that makes total sense for fat mm. loss building muscle general pop but for athletes you know the capacity to resist yielding is a key determinant of athletic success, speed, and explosiveness, without a doubt. So for them to be able to control really fucking heavy-ass weights, yeah. it's going to have a direct transfer to injury prevention. It's why there's, there's so many studies and good quality research on those Nordic falls. They mm. just do a couple of Nordic falls every week, and it drastically reduces the risk of hamstring tears. There's yeah. a reason why they're done. You know, they, they work, you know, overloading eccentric. But then there's... Also, you know, I know what you're saying, but that's why people use accentuated eccentric training methods. Mm. All right, there's, there's, you know, they use eccentric hooks and they use flywheels yeah. that when, when you push up fast, the flywheel pulls you down fast. So they're yeah. all different eccentric methods, you know, and um, they're very, very beneficial. Mm. But more for the athletic population, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. So, um just sort of to close off then, that was really, really good. I think if people listen to that, I've got a good idea of some of the things to think about when cool. putting their program together in the gym. Um, so a question that I always close with now, since I got on a podcast with Chris Van Vliet, and I thought it was a really simple but really good question. Um, what are you most, what are like the top two things you're most grateful for right now? Right. You know what? It's, um, it's a mad one, isn't it? Like, you know, being in Perth on the February the 5th, the government said that our state government said that they're going to open up the borders and travel. So we're looking forward to traveling home or having family come over. Yes. And then they went back on that word. Oh, they no. said, Oh, you know, because on Omicron and what's going on in the Eastern States, they're not going to open. They're going to delay that. Now I under like, <laughs> I know I'm diverting here, but I understand why they're doing it, but also, you know, as leaders, they shouldn't be going back on their word. Yeah. So I miss my family a lot. And, mm. um, you know, I appreciate technology, being able to mm. just FaceTime them, call them. Oh, it's, yeah, man. It's, yeah. Um, it's a bit of a funny one, but, that's just, you know, I'm grateful for technology right now and being able to, like, we're in different parts of the yeah. world and we can still communicate, talk, catch up, WhatsApp, FaceTime, do this. 
Like, I yeah. appreciate the technology and what it's allowing us to do right now with these hard times, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a weird one. No, I think it's a good answer. And I think, I think social media is this, is this social, social media, media yeah. is this, this thing where people look at it as, a, as, as they look often look at the negatives of it. And I'm like, there are people in, like in the last, in this pandemic era of these last two years where I'm solely friends with them through reaching out on social media because I can't, if I didn't have that, I'd probably be seeing my friends down the road more. Yeah, you know, I'd probably fly home more, but I've had to connect with people, and I've connected with different, new people and more interesting people, and like, and and at the same time, I can still keep in touch with my family. And I'm very, very much the same boat as you. I don't think we're likely to properly get home without a big long quarantine for a long time. We're going to come home in the summer, and it's going to be at least at the moment it'll be two weeks, two to three weeks wash out period. So I have to go somewhere else first, and then a two to three week quarantine in the hotel here. Just yeah, to go home because the flight ban. It's absolutely mad. So, um, <clears throat> just goes you off. But anyone wants to find out more about you, what you do, some of the stuff that you put online. I know you're starting to put more stuff up, which is good because I remember the last time we spoke. The last time we spoke, I was telling you off for not putting enough up, and thankfully you are yeah. starting to do it. So, where can yeah, people find you? So, um, you know, I've got my website, Stephen Collins, Stephen Collins I'm putting up articles there on a regular basis now. Got some more that are going out soon. Um, just drop me an email if you want to get in touch training or any advice or whatnot um, my social media pages same thing Stephen Collins training on Instagram and Facebook page I'm starting to put more stories up and do what you lot are doing you know like <laughs> doing. you might as well share information basic advanced everything but yeah I'm based in Perth you know if you're if you're about listening then um, hit me up in it that's, yeah, that's me in it Awesome, man. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Thank and you for uh, having me. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I will speak to you soon. All right, bro. Thank you very much. See you later.